it appears to me that there are people that are cynically going out and raising money on the idea that we should be talking about our problems all the time. And so that makes me really uncomfortable about the mental health conversation going on in the public today. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, that was a big barrier to me getting started because I didn't want to be one of those people. I didn't want to be someone who, like you say, is profiting off of their own misfortune. I'm Miriam Hoffman, a full-time college student living in Carbondale, Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Jason Meadows, welcome to the podcast. Vance, thanks for having me, man. I am grateful to be here. It's uh, it's an honor to be here sharing the screen with you. You know, there is not very many ag podcasts I listen to. It's uh, I, I have a few that are my friends or people that I know. But because I'm not in agriculture, I don't I don't have the same pull for it. So I, I try and listen to things way far away from agriculture. But every once in a while, I'll cruise in on one of yours. And I just heard one you did with uh, Jared McDaniel. And I think you have an interesting way of talking about agriculture. So I thought I'd have you on and talk about issues that are really big inside of the agriculture community. So I'm totally comfortable with this being uh, inside baseball because I feel like um, – you know, neither of us are farmers per se, but we're in the ag world. Or I guess I think you're not a farmer. I know you're a veterinarian. So anyway, why don't you introduce yourself? Actually, I'm a pharmacist. A so, pharmacist, that's right. Pharmacist, and but I also run cattle operation too. So I mean, it's a, I've got a lot of things going on. I've got a lot of different perspectives into it. So, um, but yeah, my podcast started... It's a little over a year old and I went to, I went to college, I went to St. Louis College of Pharmacy and I graduated there in 2008 and I came back home, but I wanted, and I always had this love of agriculture. I, my dad ran a cow-calf operation, owned the local livestock market and so I bought my first set of cows while I was in college so they helped finance my way through college. Uh, helped me pay my rent and and all those things. It was a really big blessing to my life. But when I was th through college and through even the first, gosh, I guess probably 10 years that I was out of pharmacy school, I wanted to find a way where I could combine those two worlds of healthcare and, and agriculture. And starting the podcast, uh, it was a way for me to kind of men or uh combine those two worlds and it's been a really interesting experience trying to talk i started out a lot more of a mental health side of things but it's evolving more into talking about just general health and well-being and trying to put that in a box that is easy for folks in agriculture to digest. Um, I think it's, you know, it sounds like it's simple, but it's, it's really easier said than done. So um, tell me about like pharmacy school of all the things that you could study in the whole world. Why was that the thing that you were drawn to? So my brother-in-law actually owned a pharmacy when I was growing up. I, I worked there. It's funny you say veterinarian because that is what I was going to do. That's what I was going to do my entire life. 
I, from the time I was, I think I was third grade until the time I was a junior in high school, I was going to be a veterinarian, a large animal vet, just because that's, I loved animals. You know, my dad had farmed, we, uh, sorry, had cows, we had horses too. And I just loved working with animals. But there was this one day I was a junior in high school, we had to do a cesarean uh, C-section on a cow with the vet out there. And it was probably six inches of snow, just freezing cold, probably January, middle of January, just awful weather. You know how Missouri weather is, uh, just terrible. And the vet said to me something, and I don't think he said it on purpose as far as to like convince me of anything, because he knew I was going to go to vet school. He's like, man, what I wouldn't give to be in a warm office today. And I was like, that was it. I was, that was the day I quit going to vet school. And uh, so from that point on, I got to uh, talking to my brother-in-law. I started working with him, uh, delivering medicine in town. Uh, we lived in a small, or I lived outside a small town in Cuba, Missouri. And that's where the pharmacy was. And I worked there delivering medicine, then working the counter, just helping him out and kind of just felt right going into that, going into school like that. And um, it was, I graduated high school in 2002. And that's when I started, I started the fall of 2002, graduated 2008. Um, it's a really great place to be if you want to help, help somebody in healthcare, but not have the demand of school like it would take to be uh, an MD or something. Um, but it's also, but it's also a, a prestigious degree too. So um, it was, it was something I felt like I could make a good living, but not be quite as married to it as I would if I were to be a doctor. And uh, so, were you the the guy that's with like a lab coat, and you're in the back of like a CVS or a Walgreens, and you're dispensing medication that way? Kind of, that, I mean, that is, that's basically my job. I do it a little bit differently. I work in a regional hospital. I work in the outpatient pharmacy of a regional hospital, um, but we are for employees only of the health system, which doesn't sound like a lot, but we have roughly 2,000 employees who we service them the employees and their families. So I manage that. That's my full-time job is I manage that pharmacy. Um, and I've been there, gosh, for the past 12 years. So um, why then like the connection when you jumped into the, the ag space and you start doing mental health? It's, it's surprising to me that it wasn't pharmaceutical health or something like that. So I think it was because I had struggled myself and I'll tell a little story here of why the podcast started. And it was, it was July of 2019. And I, up until this point, I had struggled mightily with anxiety, just, uh, just not able to get my stress under control, having a lot of stress, just so many things, uh, not really work related, but family issues, uh, farm issues, funny enough, um, even at times marriage issues. And it was, it really took a toll on me for a long time, but I was able to get a handle on it. I was able to get better with it. And, um, 
something happened in, in July of 2019. Carrie, my wife and I were at a conference in Dallas and I'll back up just here for a second. We had a, there was, we were just, we were still in our hayseeds. My dad still farms a bunch of acres, runs a lot of cattle and we were helping him out. My son and I were helping, he was 14 at the time. And Carrie and I decided to take this trip to Dallas, even though the hay season wasn't done. And I said, we, I told Levi, my oldest son that, you know, it's kind of up to him and, and grandpa to kind of get things done while we're, while we're gone. You know, I didn't expect anything like this to happen, but I get a call when I'm in Dallas at a hotel room and Levi tells me that the, the hay balers on fire. Uh, he something a uh, bearing had burnt up in the and it's it's on fire and hundred miles away from home. I mean, it's just scary. And I dealt with the situation. I talked to Levi through it, and I I think normally the old me would have went back there and like tried to drive back home and just ruined this whole time that Carrie and I had away. Um, and don't get me wrong, it was definitely a big thing that happened, but I kind of was able to talk to him on the phone, realized that everything was okay and there was no point in me going back. And just, I had that kind of moment of self-reflection there and realized that I had helped myself so much and gotten to this point. And if that, if this would have happened even a year or two earlier, then it would have been a total mess and I would have made a it made a, a bad situation even worse with how I would have reacted to it. And I realized that I'd helped myself, realized I'd gotten better. And I wanted to be able to share that with people like me who are involved in agriculture. I mean, to a certain degree, obviously I'm not as involved as a lot of people are. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to give back. I wanted to tell people, help people to have some, some faith in themselves to know that they can get better. Right. And I think the podcast was something that just, I felt could reach the most amount of people and it just kind of took off from there. What did you learn to, uh, to be able to make that change from the person that would have driven back in the middle of the night to the person that was able to say, I've done what I can from here and we're going to just keep moving forward. I think it was a lot of just self-reflection, self-awareness. Um, not, I, I'm just, I'm such a fixer, people-pleasing type person. Are you familiar with the Enneagram, Vance? A little bit. I've heard people talking about this, but I don't, I don't know very much about it. You should really try. You should really take the test because it really. I have definitely you. taken the test. I just like the answers oh, okay. don't resonate with me I enough see. For okay. me to remember them. Okay, so I'm an Enneagram type three. Like, if you read the type three, it's like a life story of me, how I, and it's the, it's an achiever, but it's also a people pleasing person. So I think the, the people pleaser in me would have wanted to be back there. And if it wasn't only for just appearances sake or to make someone else feel better about me being there. Um, and not even people that mattered and people, you know, I'm talking about neighbors, uh, people who are observing the situation from the outside in. And 
becoming really self-aware with myself, understanding like some of my motivations behind this things, the, the, my like instincts, my gut feelings and being able to push back against those and resist those a little bit. Understanding what was really important, I think, is the difference of Jason three years ago and Jason now. Wow. I mean, that's uh, that, that level of self-awareness is one that is um, not only difficult to come to realize the, of yourself, but then to be able to talk about it as, as openly, because that's a big hurdle to overcome, right? That's the poser motif. That's the the person that's um, trying to be something they're not necessarily. And uh, you just, just laid it out bare there. Yeah, it was, it was really ugly for me for a couple of probably about a month of trying to start telling that story. And it, it made me feel just, you know, when you, when you grow up and maybe you're, wanting to touch on this a little bit when you grow up and not just in agriculture, but I think in, uh, in the society that we have grown up with rurally Midwest, uh, you have these, this kind of sense of what a man is supposed to be. Right. And it's supposed to be someone who doesn't show their feelings and doesn't talk about them and buries them deep down and, uh, just, deals with them in a way that we know now is unhealthy. And for me, it was, it was dealing with it with alcohol and other things that were very unhealthy for me and being able to break that mold a little bit and being like, especially, especially right around here, especially locally here, one of the first people out of the gate talking about that, you know, especially, like I said, especially locally, um, that's scary. And it's, it, 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 you have to get really comfortable with yourself and really comfortable with your story really fast. Yeah. And it's a weird thing because if, uh, if your mental health is the, the part of your identity it's like a weird thing to, uh, to be right. Like nobody wants to be labeled the schizophrenic, but at the same time, nobody wants to be labeled as the person that is bringing up their, like their bullshit or their problems as somebody that, the, uh, to capitalize off of it. Right. We all know those people on Facebook or whatever, where their problems are, um, yeah. are just kind of shoved in your face. Yeah. And that, that was probably the part of it. I struggled with the most Vance it is not wanting to be someone who is looking to profit off of their own misfortunes. And there's a fine line there. There really is. And because I get scared that it turns into a popularity contest sometimes as far as sharing your story. And I don't, and I, I don't want this to be misinterpreted because I think it's really important for people to share their stories uh, when it, in regards to mental health. Um, but we have to be, I think we have to be really careful as to, like I said, not make it be a popularity contest and, you know, Oh, I've struggled this much or someone else has struggled. You know, we don't want it to be a one up game. We want it to be a community where we share things and, um, it, it can kind of toe that line a little close sometimes. 
Yeah, I mean, I I struggle with the the open conversations about mental health. I, I, I because I definitely know what you're talking about about be, wanting to be open with whether there was something that you had traumatic in your life that if you had only known other people went through this too then that's like helping people. I definitely 100% believe in that. My wife and I couldn't get pregnant for a really long time and we went through hell on that and I want to tell people about it because all, you know, I do not want other people to experience that without having known, hey, this can happen to you. But the flip side of that is, like you said, it appears to me that there are people that are cynically going out and raising money on the idea that we should be talking about our problems all the time. And so that makes me really uncomfortable about the mental health conversation going on in the public today. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And, you know, that was a big barrier to me getting started because I didn't want to be one of those people. I didn't want to be someone who, like you say, is profiting off of their own misfortune and trying to make a buck off of that. And I, I don't want to be that. I, that's for sure. And I and I think the people and I think the people who really are reaching folks and really making a difference, they aren't that. Yeah, I would, and, I, I would say like your conversation with Jared McDaniel was one that that uh, was very, very interesting to me because it felt like uh, the sharing that you guys talked about is what made me really interested in what you're doing is that um, you were sharing it as like a way to be like. Yeah, this is the way that I understand the world. I'm a primate out here with all my vices and and the things I want to get better at. And, you know, this is the way that I've experienced bad things that have gone on. And then the other primate is able to say to him, like, yeah, I, I agree with that. That's that also I see the same thing that you do because shared understanding is like the foundation of what it is to be human. So there's there's definitely a space for people to be talking about this is the way I dealt with anxiety and the problems in my life. I, I 100% think that you're feeling that. Well, thanks. I, I, that's what I try to make it be. I try to make it be real conversations between real people and, you know, you get, that's a good thing about agriculture when you're, when you're focusing on agriculture is, you know, there's not a whole lot of room for a whole lot of BS and, people for the most part, I mean, if they can, they can smell a bullshit art, artist really fast. And I try my hardest to never be one of those because I, I want to be real. I, I take pride in the fact that my podcast, when you hear me talk on my podcast, that's what it's like talking to me in real life. I mean, that is exactly I I make it as real and just like a normal conversation I would have with someone. Um, you know, I, I fail at that sometimes, uh, but I, I try my hardest to make it like that. Oh, there's no doubt. When you're doing a podcast, one of the biggest challenges is you have to have some level of persona to be able to stand in front of, you know, the black mirror in front of you and talk directly to it. But yet you can do your best to have a conversation that, maybe is is uh, worthwhile to have a snapshot. I'm always trying to think of, you know, what is the the most interesting thing that we would be glad that we both shared? And 
There's a subject that a lot of people don't like talking about, but I think from the faith that you have, it probably would be something that'd be really interesting, not only for you to talk about, but for people to hear, which is that you're a member of the the Mormon church, the LDS. And, church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We've, yeah. We've kind of shifted away from using the first two terms just because we don't want to leave. Uh, and I'm not trying to... No, this is great. Here, I don't know anything at I, all about it. So, Go ahead. Okay. So I'm glad you brought this up because I don't talk, I don't get to talk about this very much. And um our we have a president of our church. Uh, his name's Russell Russell and Nelson, and he wanted to not be any doubt what the focus of our church was and that focus being Jesus Christ. And when you use the terms LDS, Latter-day Saint, Mormon, uh, those terms were, there was nothing necessarily wrong with them, but they didn't identify what the sole focus of our church was, and that was Jesus Christ. And that's, uh, gosh, when was it? A couple of years ago, we, was it, uh, it doesn't matter, 2018, I think it was, um, where they really pushed forward trying to change what we call it. And, and so I, what is it, the official it, title then? Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the biggest problem with that for me uh, is that it's a mouthful. It's a lot to say. And Mormon, LDS, Latter-day Saint, those things are a lot easier to say. But the problem that comes with those is you leave what the sole focus of the church is. So... Yeah. Are you offended if somebody refers to it as LDS or, or Mormon? No, not at all. No, because for the most part, most people, that's how they know it. And I'm not offended. I, Vance, I'm virtually unoffendable. I just am um, by my nature. Um, but I, I, I'm not offended, but I am also not shy to correct either. So the... I, I've been thinking a lot about uh, community and how the, from my perspective, one of the biggest reasons that we're in the amount of social strife that we're in right now, which I think then equates to existential dread, you know, what's going to happen, those other guys are out to get me, they're going to take something from me. Um, I think a huge component of that comes from the fact that people are not in community, they are not finding a group of people that have the same value set that they do, but then coming from different walks of life. Because when you have that, then you have to collide with those people at like church, for example. Mm -hmm. And you have to stand next to somebody that you don't agree with the way he thinks an election should run or the, what, what you know, how your, um, your neighborhood has some regulation that he likes and you don't like. Those things you're going to just encounter. But because you have to see that guy next week, you have to figure out a way to talk to him. And occasionally he's going to have an idea that you didn't have that's going to influence you for the better. And we don't have that anymore in almost any domain except for churches in this country. You're, you're right. And, you know, I'll take it even to even a step further. And we talk about, um, you know, a big problem. Now, Again, it's a great thing. Social. I'm, I'm going to talk about social media, and it's a good thing. Social media is a good thing to have because, let's face it, you and I may have never 
connected if it wasn't for social media. Um, so many people that I've talked to on the podcast, it would have been virtually impossible for us to not impossible, but much, much harder. But the problem with social media is you can say anything without fear of retribution. Uh, some of the things that you, you used to be able, if you would, if you would say the same thing that you, that people are saying online to one another, it would likely end up in a, in an altercation it'd end up with someone getting punched in the mouth. And when you remove that, that fear of retribution, that fear of, 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 of an altercation, then people will just say whatever. And it's like you said, there's no community anymore. There's no way for people to, uh, face that in the long term because they don't they're not going to go see that person that they that they lashed out on at the grocery store at church or something like that and you know it's it social media is a blessing and a curse and um we have to be very careful with how we use it i think that uh you know that the fact that there is no retribution right that the person can just sit there and pop off means that you are so much more vulnerable to bias and self-censorship and all the behaviors that are going to warp the way that you think because it warps what you say. And, you know, anytime you're writing down something that you're really thinking hard, like, how's this person going to interpret it and that person? And is this going to score points on this other person? You're messing around with what the truth actually is. And you're warping your words and you're changing the way that you perceive what it is that you're, um, what you really think, because you're trying to please these other people. And then you're surrounding yourself with other people that think similar to you with that warped level of thinking, whether that's what they actually think, or that's also what they think the crowd needs to hear or wants to hear. And it's not good. Mm -mm. No, it's, it's, we, we put so you just kind of illustrated what it's like to try and navigate that whole landscape there. And you put so much energy into all these different aspects of what you're trying to say when used to, it was just uh, an interaction between two human beings and it was just left at that. And uh, it's, it's, I, I don't, we, we are if social media, Technology is advancing and evolving much faster than our human brains are able to to compute it. Uh, I mean, that's the way I feel anyway. I don't think that we are able to keep up with how fast it's moving. Yeah, I mean, I think the amount of information that we're trying to track at any given time is completely overwhelming, and and that's likely the 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 reason the way it's structured the way that it is. I was just uh, writing a talk um, and one of the pieces of information I wanted to put in there is that human beings can only hold seven discrete things in their minds, um, plus or minus two. So some people can hold nine things in their minds, some people can hold five things. But for the most part, it's you can hold seven things in your working memory at any given time. So if you go to make a decision on what house are we gonna buy, and you're thinking about three different things, the way the tile looks, how great the bathroom is, and the red front door, then you only have four more things that you can be thinking about at that at that time. Because once you go over seven, you have anxiety. And uh, 
I think we're overloaded with how many things we think we're supposed to know about what the, what's going on. And it's taking up this working memory and it's overloading our anxiety systems. And, and I, and I'm as guilty as that as anyone trying to figure out, because I do, I want to be in the know on things and I want to be caught up in all everything, but it's, like I've never heard that. I'm glad that you shared that with me because that's a really, uh, it kind of puts into perspective how many things you can really have your attention on. And if it's seven things, I mean, gosh, how many things are, how much, you know, it really helps you understand what's important, what you want to give that space to, you know, is it some, is it what someone who may or may not be a real person said to me on Twitter? Is that something you want to put on in the, on one of filling up one of those seven compartments or are you trying to do would you rather replace that with something who that has more long-lasting and important uh consequences well man we did this sober october and uh in the articulate ventures network and the thing one of the things that i gave up was twitter and i had no idea how hard that was going to be to do i i really did not realize just how much of a of an electronic addiction I had built. But then on top of that, it also it did exactly what you're describing. I was paying attention to having arguments with people that were hundreds of miles away from me that was a throwaway comment or they, they didn't really t- take the time to think about what I said. And I am wasting my like very precious attention on that when I have a brand new baby. Mm-hmm. And like, as soon as I made that realization, I was like, what an expensive thing to waste your attention on Twitter. I, I had an experience on Twitter long ago, way before there was an ag state of mind Twitter. Um, it was just my own personal Twitter. And I had made a comment towards a ESPN uh, personality. I don't remember what it was, Vance. I don't remember what I said, but I got so much hate coming into me, retweets and comments. And I remember how much like just of my own personal bandwidth that took up. And I was, I was like distraught by that. And this was probably six or seven years ago, you know, when Twitter was a lot younger than it is now. And I was a lot younger and I I remember how that made me feel. And after it was all kind of done, I, I, I deleted my Twitter account after that. I mean, that was how bad it affected me. And then I remember, then I just kind of realized like how big of a waste of time for me to worry about what a complete stranger would think I, I think something totally not correct about me and that I, I really was a Twitter. I was really able to learn early on the, the value or, or devalue a lot of the interactions I have on there. So um, going back to the Mormon and the community mm-hmm. there. Sure. So tell me about the community that you have there. How often do you get together with people from your church? How often do you see people? How does that all that community build out? So it normally, normally, right? Um, we get together with the church obviously once a week, and then our kids go to youth activities every Wednesday. Um, and my wife is involved with that. I'm not. I usually 
I, I'm more involved with the, there's, there's a, there's a certain structure within the church where there are people who are in charge of young men, young women, that's our like 12 to 18 year olds. There's people who are in charge of like the primary, which is everyone younger than 12. And then there's people in, in, uh, in charge of, um, I don't want to say in charge, but has stewardship over um, the adult males and then uh, the adult women too. So there's, there's various activities on a normal time that are always planned throughout the, throughout the year, throughout the month. And we kind of take turns as organizations, who's doing what each month. And we'll have like a big get church get together once a month where it's at like, whether it be like a, um, a hog roast at a brother's house or, um, you know, we used to always have like a trunk or treat for our hollow, for the kids that come in. Um, I never see, I didn't grow up in the church Vance. I, my wife was a member of the church. And when, when we got married, that was something that I, um, I made the choice to do is join her in that. Whoa, and, that is yeah, a big no, one. That's a believe big me, change. man, if you would have known me 12 years ago when I graduated college and know me today, it would be like talking. I don't want to say that because I don't think my personality has changed, but my habits and the things that I do, it is totally different. It's a totally different person. So, I so mean, that was when, a huge challenge for me. So let's talk about the, I mean, one of the things would be being a, a young guy doing what you want and then you join the church and now you have groups that you go to where there's a steward that like guides you. Is that Bible study? What does that look like? You know, it's a lot less formal than you would think. It's so, the, the people in the church are, are the nicest people on earth. They are the at least where I go to church, um, they are people who they, they were just, you would just be friends with them. And it was always funny because I didn't know who were, who were members of the church because I worked at the, at the hospital in Rolla for probably almost a year before I started to go into church here. And the, I was very surprised at the people who were members of the church that I, I working at the hospital and that comforting to me because, um, so I'll back up a little bit. When I was in youth group in church growing up at my, at the church I grew up going to, we would have like these, my, my youth pastor would be very anti-Mormon. He would talk about things in the Mormon church and like how it was almost akin to devil worship and this sort of thing. And like, so when that's wild i mean the wild. reputation that i had when i was growing up and and it didn't break in my mind until i met a bunch of mormons they were nice people but they were in a cult that's what we were told mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so it wasn't until i went on my first trip to a utah farm bureau that i meet a bunch of um i don't remember the full name of the church but the the mormons sure. the, that's fine like, you can use that I, I i you won't offend me one bit vance you can well, use that because it's easier that's, and I they understand. were exceptionally nice and candid to the point of um i mean like um heartwarming and and so for me i was like this is an interesting group of people i don't know what what other people accuse you of but every time i've interacted with your people They've been very good to me. 
Yeah. And it, and that was, I mean, so, I mean, I was, so on our second date, Carrie and I were sitting across from one another eating and I don't know why she didn't tell me on the first day, maybe she was scared to, I don't know, but we were sitting across from one another eating and we started talking about church and I asked, Oh, so do you go to church? You know, we kind of exchanged stories like you would. And I said, Oh, what church do you go to? And she said, LDS church. And I, I didn't know what that meant. She, and I said, Oh, I, what, what's that? And she said, Mormon. And, uh, she said, I stopped mid bite with a, with a fork full of food and just like just stared at her for a couple of seconds. And, um, like, because I'd had such a negative view of that group of people. And it was solely because of a youth pastor that I had. And it, just had this really bad, left this really bad taste in my mouth. So I was very skeptical going in, but to, and then, and then when my wife and I, when I started going to church with her, so the church is separated into it's, it's separated. It has a very, uh, very neat, flowchart like organization as to as to um who goes to church where and it's by ge geography um so my wife lived in dixon missouri which would have put her in a different church we call them wards um she went to church in saint robert which was a military heavy ward. So that was my first impression where people of the military, well, it was a little bit different, right? It wasn't, uh, you know, how military people can, when you, when you are not a military person, it can almost make you feel like an outsider. So that was like my first impression of the church or well, one B, I guess it, we'll call it. But then when I came to church where I go now, which is in Rolla, uh, the, the, the warmth and the greeting that I had, the friends that I made who are still some of my best friends to this day. Um, it was, it, it turned me around really fast. So when you get in there and you start hearing what the Mormons believe, can you see the things that the person that was scaring you about the Mormons can you see where the kernel of, of uh, the story grew from into something wild and nebulous? Or was it just completely fabricated? No, I, I, I don't. I don't see that at all. And I have no idea where that would come from. I, I, I have no idea why anyone would talk bad about these people. It's, it's, it's incredible to me because to me, the church represents everything that is good and pure about, honestly, about being an American. I mean, community, uh, watch, taking care of your brother, um, a sense of pride, a sense of hard work, um, it, it, the, the real true meaning and the true uh, foundation of the church is it's, a, it, it's great because it's a uniquely American church. I mean, it's, it's, it's spread to all corners of the world now, but it, it was one of the first purely American religions. I, you know, I never really thought about it. The, the Mormon church like version of the Pope it would have, would exist in the United States. The center yeah, exactly. of power would be the United States. I never, yeah. never even crossed my mind. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, there's a hierarchy that passes down much like you would think of with the Pope or uh, a, a, a head of another church. I'm not sure how it is in other religions, but um, there's a, there's a definite hierarchy there. And so what's difference, the difference between the Holy Scriptures that, that you were using before and that are now considered holy in this version, in this so Catholic church? There's just extra. Okay, so if you went to church... Oh man, St- Revelation says you're not supposed to do that, man. So I know, I know. <laughs> and that was a big thing for me, Vance. That was a big problem I had. And it's hard for me to explain because I am very new to the church relatively. You know, I think it was 20, 20, 2010 when I was baptized. So, I mean, 10 years, it's just been 10 years. Um, So I'm, I'm still learning. So um, the way I understand it is there was nothing that was necessarily. So when, when, when revelation is speaking, Revelation is speaking about the Holy Bible, and the Holy Bible is the collection of the New Testament and of the Old Testament, and that is closed. There is nothing that can be added to the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the Book of Mormon is something separate. It's something, it's a, and it says that in the title page, in everything that you read or is discussed about the Book of Mormon, it's another testament of Jesus Christ. So it's not, necess- it's not adding anything to the original scriptures. It's something separate. So what the Book of Mormon is, is the story of Jesus coming to America, to the Americas after his death and resurrection in, um, in the Holy land. So he, uh, he, it was, there was this whole, it starts out with a family who immigrated from Jerusalem to the Americas made the, made the trek over here. And we can, it, you know, you can get, there's someone way more qualified to talk about it than me, but this is my, no, this is a I, great primer, man. I know nothing at all about this. Good, good, because I don't know if I've ever explained it in real detail to anyone who didn't understand it because of how relatively my relative infancy in the church. And so this, um, it was the family of, of, of Lee, excuse me, Lehi. Lehi was the father. There was this group of brothers um, and Nephi was kind of their, their leader. Um, but he had these two older brothers who were kind of jerks to him all the way through the thing. And that was a big tug and pull through the time of them getting over here. And then they finally get over here and um, then they break off into these two kind of tribes and they're the Nephites and the Lehi, uh, I'm sorry, Nephites and the Lamanites. Uh, Laman was one of Nephi's kind of jerk face brothers, right? And um, they, throughout the Book of Mormon, there's struggle and strife between the the Nephites and the Lamanites. And it kind of goes in, that just kind of goes on through almost in forever uh, until, and I honestly, Vance, and I'm I'm kind of, showing what I don't know here. I'm not really sure where it goes from there because I'm still learning. Right. I mean, and I, I'm, I'm comfortable admitting that, that, and it's proof that 
there's room for everyone in that church if you want to be there. Because I, I mean, I learn. I know a lot more now, but I, I still have a lot more to learn. I mean, my wife. Oh, I think if you asked uh, a person, not not all certainly, but many people that are um, a part of the Christian faith, if you ask them, tell me any of the, you know, how many people in the Bible can you name? And in that, in what you can name, what all did they do? And if it wasn't turned into a musical or a Charlton Heston movie, <laughs> they have very limited understanding of what that is. And I think that that's, that's part of religion becoming a read-only culture um, or one that is passed down to your families. And that's something I think the Mormons uh, are doing really well in this modern age. They've found a way to perpetuate their ideas to the next generation um, so that more people have heard about it the next year than less, right? It's a, it's a growing um, place where there's people that are learning it. They're having it uh, a part of their everyday life when they eat, when they um, spend time with their family, the activities that they do. And I think many of the other religions have not done that. And, and I think in a lot of ways, they, that's um, been uh, the thing that keeps you resilient and the thing that makes a lot of other faiths uh, becoming kind of fragile or, or brittle right now. Yeah, we do a really, really good job of that. And, you know, we we see the president of our church as as the as the prophet, as a prophet who has a direct uh kind of dialogue with God. And so last year, I'm just making sure I have this right. Yes, 2019, we instituted a new program where it was a much more home centered. So we used to go to church for three hours on Sunday. That's one of the biggest things that drives people away, I think, is spending three hours on Sunday at church. Um, so we, we lessened that by an hour, but we emphasized, or our church leaders emphasized the importance of having study at home taking the time as parents to share the lesson. They, they had this whole manual set out and the, the lessons that you were supposed to share with your children each night and share as a family each night. And we, we, we stuck to that. We were very, and I'd like to take more credit for it than, than I, than I actually deserve. Carrie was like so crucial in this and making sure we stuck to this every night. And we really got in this groove of, of home center church, really making sure we talk about church things at night for, and it may be for just five or 10 minutes, but we have a conversation about the scriptures, about the lessons. And then in fast forward 14, 15 months and COVID happened and everything shut down. There was no church to be had. Um, That's some pretty forward thinking stuff then. I, so I was in, I was, so I was in a meeting. I was a member of the Sunday school presidency. That's, I mean, a Sunday school is another person, another part of the hierarchy or the, the, the organization of the church. And I was at this meeting with, um, some area leaders. And I remember our, uh, 
the areas are called stakes. A stake can be is so many war. So a ward. I'm just going to do a little bit of inside baseball here on that. A ward is a collection of so many people in a geographic area. And that's the people you go to church with every Sunday. So many wards make up a stake and a stake is like kind of like your area. Um, our, a stake is so many wards, which are comprised of so many people and a stake can be our stake right now goes from, Cuba where I live and goes like down to like over to like Lake of the Ozarks, um, a, a fairly good sized area. But if that, if you were talking about a stake in Utah, it's city blocks wide. Um, you know, just because of the concentration, it depends on the concentration of church members in a given area. So we were at this conference, this state conference is what it was called. And he was speaking to us the, the, where there's someone called who's the leader of the state called the state president. And he was speaking to us and he said, I, I would like to know, because we view the prophet as someone as like the, the watchman on the tower. Uh, someone who is looking out ahead and wanting to and seeing what we can't see, right? And he sees what's coming, but he it's his job to prepare all of us for that. And he, I remember our state president saying, "I wish I knew what he saw because it's something big." And I mean obviously this is what he saw. He saw what the world was coming to, what uh, what the pandemic, what the lockdowns were going to be. And I feel like the church has stayed as strong as ever, where I don't think you can say that about a lot of faiths, a lot of churches. I mean, a hundred percent, you can't say that. I mean, I, I predict, I think there are going to be a lot of people that in the nihilistic, um, present that we're in where it, it things feel like a zero-sum game and that they don't have any friends and they don't have any connections and they can't find anybody that thinks like they do well that's going to be because they were so inundated with the idea that their in identity is driven from what what makes them separate from other people as opposed to a, a significant portion of your identity is about how you interact and how you engage with other people. Mm -hmm. And I think when that realization comes, we're going to see different groups pop up and some of them will be oriented towards the good. And some of them will be oriented towards probably towards uh, causing suffering with other people, but that I think a lot of people are going to try and find church um, because it'll feel comfortable for them. But right now that's not happening. Yeah, and we we just started going back to church um, a couple of weeks ago. Well, as a church, we did. I've had two different kids on quarantine from school um, the last two Sundays, so we haven't been there for that. But hopefully we get to go back for the first time um, with the church as a whole this Sunday. What are we going to do with this quarantining thing? Because right now it's like, uh, at least what I've seen, people get, uh, get notification and then every person they came in contact with now has to be out for seven days until they don't have symptoms or 14 days. And it's, it's like, it seems like a matter of mathematics that eventually everyone will get pinged by this. I don't know. seems like it's, 
it's it's a public health nightmare vance it's something that i just i don't understand where they're coming up with these things um and and i'll share something with you and some things someone else shared with me in that all uh so take a my son for example he sat next to a girl in school uh they're in fourth grade he sat next to a girl who tested positive him and i can't remember but the people who were very close to her in class they were all sent home on quarantine not one of those in our school who have been sent home have come back with a positive test right i mean i i, I don't like i don't get it i don't understand um well, and why why we're so careful with uh, like children right like we're treating this as though all ages get this and are harmed by this in the exact same way and that's just not true like it's not true at all i mean the i don't want to say i don't want to speak in absolutes here but i mean it's virtually unheard of for ch a child to, without you know comorbidities or complicating factors to die of this even to be i mean the vast vast majority of them are asymptomatic i mean the kids will test positive and they won't have as much as a runny nose i mean they'll say that if you feel fine and it's just it's incredible that we are we're putting we're putting our we're kind of hijacking our immunity with this stuff i mean to me that's how we defeated diseases for and now i'm i i believe in vaccines i think vaccines are something that have made modern medicine and made humanity better but for for a long time that's how we got immune to anything was by being exposed to it and basically that's what a that's what a vaccine is just in a watered down way yeah, and we were we had the whole summer to have had people really engage with one another like at, you know, we know it's going to be there, but everybody's going to be full of vitamin D summertime, you're going to get some more sleep, you're not going to be out and about, we'll get it, we'll have some people get it, it'll spread around. But we didn't do that, we kept everybody indoors. And so now they're going to go into fall and winter and be way more lax because we've we've kept it at red alert at top notch you know fear factor and then uh and then you know we're inside and and it's uh people are going to be taking off their masks and spending more time with one another i don't know it just seems like we've backed ourselves into a corner here right carrie and i were talking just this this evening and um we have think you know we had, we're two weeks away from thanksgiving and you know i i believe that it's a legitimate concern for folks like my parents who uh my dad is 84 has copd uh doesn't isn't in very good health uh, my mom's in is 80 but she's in much she's in better health but she's still 80 um those are the people who i really am concerned for i mean i bet this this virus poses a real threat for them and i feel like we could have done such a better job just kind of spreading it around to people who 
would not be affected by it and kind of let it pass through. And now, like you say, it's, you know, it gets dark at five o'clock. It's getting colder now. We're being indoors way more. Um, I just feel like there was some real oversight here. So um, you're around a lot of heavy medications, right? And you were talking Mm -hmm. about things like anxiety before. What do you think about people using um, medicine or chemicals to be controlling their mental health issues? So I obviously think that there's a a place for that. Um, You know, that's part of what pays my mortgage, right? (laughs) Is I I dispense medicine to people. So I, I do believe in it. I do believe there's a place for it. My problem is that's the first place people go to. You go to a primary care provider and you talk to them, you suck, you you say, I have had all this stress. I'm yelling at my wife all the time, yelling, I'm, you know, being a jerk to my kids. I, I just can't, I can't seem to cope anymore. So, okay, well, you know, how about we try some Zoloft here? You know, that, that I know that's helped a lot of other people. Um, you know, that should try that for about six weeks and see if you show a difference. And you go back in six weeks and you're like, oh, it's, I'm probably better. Um, and so, well, so we put you only on 50 milligrams. Let's try a hundred milligrams. And then you go, it's just this vicious cycle where you don't think it's working anymore. Like, well, okay, well, let's try some effectsor instead. And it's just, you get all, it's just, it, it, it approached way to the, 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 the ease of which we can prescribe medications for these for these disorders is I feel like we're way too trigger happy on it. Uh, by we, I meant as I shouldn't say we, I doctors are, uh, healthcare providers are. And so, um, the, a big one that came up that kind of hit everybody's news radars that was paying attention was the Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychologist that often talks to people about, you know, cleaning up their room, taking responsibility for themselves, pushing themselves forward. He uh, had some depression issues and took some benzodiazepines mm-hmm. and then developed a hardcore addiction to them and said he couldn't get off them. So he was like over in Russia. What are benzodiazepines? They're your like your Xanax, your Valium, Ativan. They're, they're a mild hypnotic and they do they are a uh, classification for um by the dea as far as uh, addiction potential so there's a significant um, uh, level of addiction possibility with them and addiction can happen with these medications within a few doses and they so the place they are supposed to play in anxiety depression are you're supposed to take them for a month and then wean off of them for while while let me back up here the reason that you have that benzodiazepine excuse me benzodiazepine taper is a lot of the ssris like your zoloft's your prozac's um even your effectors they take like six weeks to reach uh, their steady state 
they're like enough how, dose being in there with enough half-life that it actually exactly you. yes exactly yeah yeah and they take about six weeks and so the benzos are supposed to be prescribed for like four weeks and then gradually tapered off but people aren't doing that. And like you said, and like I said earlier, I mean, there's the, there's the potential for abuse only within, uh, or addiction only within a few doses. And um, they're just, they're way, way overprescribed. And, you know, there what are, are people- What are they supposed I, to be doing? Why does somebody get a benzodiazepine prescribed to them? So they're a calming agent. They will, they work on, I can't, for the life of me, think of the system they work on. Um, you know, my pharmacology teacher is going to come back and strangle me for this. But uh, they, they, what they do is they, they provide a calming effect to someone who is. People will call them a nerve pill. You know, you hear somebody say oh, that. You know, a little old lady come to the pharmacy. I need my nerve pill. That's generally a Xanax or a, um, a Valium or something like that. And they kind of will mellow a person out. They will make them not so irritable, not so, uh, really not so anxious. You know, anxious, but they, and it, it, well, was, but, but then eventually when they want to get off of them, do, is what is the addiction th response? What does it feel like? It's like, uh, you know, there's respiratory issues. There's, um, like psychological things, there's, uh, it's almost like a rebound effect. Like it's worse than the anxiety was that you were treating, right? It's, it's just, it's, it, it affects everyone differently, but there's, you know, you can have cardio, you can have tachycardia, you know, increased heart rate, all these things that are just the body needing that, you know, it's, it's like you give your, your car, um, you know, premium gasoline, this is probably a bad example, but you just, you, 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 you take that away from it all of a sudden, well, it's not going to perform at the level that it's supposed to. And it's, you're, you're putting chemicals in your body and you're, you're maintaining a homeostasis. Your body's become used to that. Then you take those chemicals away. It's just like, it's like you're, it's not, doesn't have the right chemicals in it to function properly or how it's been used to functioning you know anxiety i was reading that was kind of that was kind of muddy i'm sorry but. no i mean i get it i mean what it, what it makes me think of is that anxiety is one of those things if you go read carl jung and and what he talks about with anxiety he says the the one good thing about anxiety is that it is referring to something going on in the present you don't have to go dig around in somebody's past about some problems they had with their parents or something they haven't gotten over since they were a child. The, the, that feeling of anxiety is something that their brain is trying to tell them you need to pay attention to this or you need to let this go or you need to move past this. And so the concept of medicating that is like uh, – I mean, I'm sure there are circumstances where they're needed, I, you know, and I'm, I, I'm, I've never had to deal with the depths of needing to go in the, in the medical direction, but it also is a nihilistic, uh, path because it's just saying like, Hey, I don't know how to figure out what this problem is. 
and I'm I'm gonna t- I'm gonna take the the nap for a while, and hopefully I wake up from the nap and I'm not in more pain than I was when I started. So, man, I heard this recently from someone. Uh, it was Dr. John Deloney. He is he's actually a, a mental health specialist with uh, with Dave Ramsey with Ramsey Solutions. I, I was listening to him this week and. He made the really great point in that anxiety in itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. It's a tool because it helps you know that there is something wrong. There is something, there's a negative stim or something you perceive um, as negative stimulus and that's your reaction to that. That it's like a it, it's like a, a conditioning thing, a, an instinctual thing to um you know, you've got absolutely, big, absolutely. Yeah, you've, you've got a big test coming up. You've got a big uh, presentation at work. I mean, you're, you're not dealing with a problem, and you're and you're ignoring it, and you're trying to be like, I'm just going to keep walking past that, and hopefully, it won't be here when I get back. So there's the problem, Vance. The problem is people want to. The anxiety is there, but we mask it. And the problem is we aren't doing enough to cope with it. We need to get better at actually addressing whatever the problems are coming our way. Uh, We need to get better at understanding that this thing isn't going, if we push it away, it's not going to go away. Uh, Someone, someone described it to me one time as like, say you say there's this room in your house and there's a light bulb out, you know, you've got to change that light bulb. And, but you keep ignoring it, you keep ignoring it. And what happens when you keep ignoring it? It keeps nagging at you even more and more and more. What's the only solution to that problem? Go put a new light bulb in, you know? And that's the way we have to treat anxiety. That's the way we have to treat these, these things. We have, to, we have to address them. We can't ignore them. And I think so many people just want to ignore them and want to just think that it's going to go away when it's not really going to go away. We just have to find a better way of coping with it. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the, the challenge that I have with the mantras that seem to go around about empathy with helping somebody get through their problems. When the focus is on, you have to really know where they're coming from because I think you should have compassion for people. I think you should be like, Hey, it would be awful to have those issues, but anything other than um, helping get them on their feet so that they can move towards the solution that they that they themselves want to find, that they have chosen that they're going to get up and solve. I think anything else is it's not necessarily helping. I don't I don't think it's good to go to people and say you're great the way that you are because if they're feeling anxiety, they're like. Well, then I feel anxiety. What am I supposed to just stop feeling this? Yeah, no, I mean, you have to. That's, that my, that's been my thing all along is recognize the problems, but don't leave without solutions. There's solutions and there's, there's solutions that, and I think the problem is, is the solution. And it's, it's, it's just like with exercise. It's just with like uh, getting healthier the the quick fixes are always a lot faster and seem a lot better than the actual real hard work that it takes to actually get better 
what do you uh what do you do to choose what area you're working on next i know you're in the middle of running right now but how do you choose what your next big thing is man it's i i, I do a lot of compartmentalization vance um that's you know i give and i was talking to someone on a podcast just this past week about this and it's all about giving the appropriate thing the appropriate attention at the appropriate time and you know i've got a lot of things going on i've got a job i've got a wife and four kids i've got um you know a pretty significant size farm to take care of and i've got this podcast thing too i mean and i'm trying to do like you mentioned i'm trying to take care of my health and try to take care of the of my body and exercise and making sure i'm taking care of my own needs too and um my biggest thing is is writing things out in advance and we talk about this in the avn a lot about about how important journaling is and journaling has been my savior as far as being able to get to the next big thing um that's been what has uh really elevated my goal status and how, my, how do you write your how do you write in your journal what do you think about so I think about what like, my biggest thing is I, I, I really, I really focus, especially early in the morning, I focus on gratitude because I think it's been studied that gratitude, if you start your tape with any sort of gratitude, then you are just setting yourself up for success. And I, I'm living proof of that. I, I, I'll skip a day of journaling where I don't go through my daily gratitudes and I feel like shit because I don't. I, I didn't start with that. And it's just, um, well, and I think people could look that at that cynically and be like, Oh, well you want to do gratitude so that good things happen to you. But what you don't realize is if you're grateful for what you have, you can feel a sense of satisfaction. And if you don't feel grateful for what you have, you will never be satisfied. Right. Yeah. And so like if it is one of those things that if you can get yourself to sit down and be like, Hey, I'm actually going to take the time to do this. It's uh, it's a it's a conversation with that inner daemon, that inner voice, that is good and has a calming effect on everybody. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And having the having that conversation, like with yourself, and being uh, being really like intentional with the things that you're grateful for, then you can kind of move on to the things. And my big things is goals and um, having just for example, I'm, I'm wanting to, I have a, I have a line of credit with, with, for, uh, for my cattle loan that I'm really focusing on paying down right now. And that's like my, that's my, in my journal, that's my most effective goal or my most impactful goal. And really right now, that's where all of my attention is, is being thrown to at this moment. Um, and, and, you know, and, and if, when that gets done, then it's going to be something else. And just always having something that I'm working towards uh, really keeps me going and keeps the, it keeps me way ahead of my demons. And tell me about your demons. What, what do you mean? Which ones? So I am, I am a victim of comparison. Um, I, and I didn't share this with you yet, but, um, and I think it's, an, but I think it's significant. I am the youngest of five kids and I have been like perpetually 
comparing myself to my older brothers, especially uh, who are very successful. One's a, one's a farm bureau agent. One is a, um, he's a, a civil engineer. He owns his own civil engineering firm and, you know, Try, comparing myself with them has been like the like my ultimate vice for the, the most of my adult life just trying to see how I've stacked up to them at a certain point in my life and um, really trying to make sure I have my own interests in mind and not comparing myself to them um, that is that that's being trying Falling into that trap in comparison to them is is something that I struggle with mightily, and um, they probably don't even know that about me. Um, but it's I think it's something that is is when you're the when you're the baby of the family. I think it's something that is just natural, and I've really got to fight that because that's. Um, I think I don't think it's just the baby of the family. I think that's everybody. Just all, I'm I'm yeah. the middle of seven, man, and I think that everybody has to look around and be like, you know, you're. I, I've I've heard it once said that the comparison that most people make to that uh, determines their self esteem is how are you doing compared to your brother in laws, which I think is an interesting one, right? Because it says, all right, we all married into the same family. So we're at some level, but we're, you know, we came from different angles. How am I doing relative to this other person? And it's, it's an interesting idea because um, with your siblings, maybe it's not such a terrible thing to do some comparison, particularly if you view them as successful, right? Like maybe, maybe the idea that like there are things to admire that are there. And as long as it doesn't become resentful, that's probably okay. Yeah. And that, and I think that's where it's that, that's the key there is not being resentful. And I don't think, I don't know if I've ever made it be resentful. Um, but sometimes I find myself, um, chasing after the wrong things. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get into, because out of respect for my, for my family, I don't want to get into too many particulars there. Um, but there, there's this, there's this line that, Funny enough, Jimmy Buffett said it, and I have used it so much in my life. I probably heard it 20 years ago where he was talking about comparing himself with Eric Clapton and how he wished, wished, wished he could play the guitar like Eric Clapton. And he kind of had that, um, he kind of had that frame of mind for a long time in that he, he, he would never measure up to Eric Clapton as how great of a guitar player he was. But then it kind of hit him one day and it's like, you know, I bet Eric Clapton wishes he could throw a, a, a fishing rod like Jimmy Buffett can. You know, so, I mean, comparison is all relative. We're all great at something, and we all have that thing that, you know, we may not understand how great we may be at that, and somebody may um, somebody may wish that they were as great as something as we are. We just don't understand that or realize that sometimes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think uh... – and when you bring it up as a demon, I'm sitting here thinking, well, that's not my direct demon. I can see where it comes from, but my demons are, you know, totally different vices. But it's interesting that that's the one you picked up on. I'm I'm glad you shared that. That's a good thing to think about. Yeah, it is. It's it, it, it. There's, I mean, there's some heavy stuff with that. Um, 
and I, I guess out of respect to my family, I don't want to share that. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's something that's gnawed on me for a lot of times. But I'm I'm really I've really come to peace with it now. And so um, when we wrap up here, when you think about um, the direction your podcast is heading in. Um, you know, you've done uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews. Um, where, where's it going? It's going to a place. And I, I hit on this a little bit earlier where it's, you know, we're still, there's still going to be a focus on mental health, um, because I think it's important and it's important to have good, meaningful conversations, not just the woe is me type conversations, you know, the real solutions, uh, what people did to get through them. Um, but I'm really interested in, fo- in focusing on health as a holistic topic and talking more about physical health and as it relates to mental health. So this coming January, I am talking to nothing but dietitians um, about how the food we eat affects our body and affects our, uh, affects our mood and how by changing up how we feed our body, how that feeds our brain. And, um, my, my big thing is also, and I want to talk to each one of them about how us as livestock producers can help understand that we, that the meat that we provide, the meat that comes from the cattle, I'm talking about cattle just because that's what I know. Um, but how that is part of a healthy diet and how that can help people be healthy as well, because there's as you know, there's a misconception about that run abound. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on the, the part about the misconceptions. I, uh, I have my doubts about the value of, uh, dietitians. Really? I, uh, yeah. I mean, I think there are some out there. I've, I know people that are dietitians well, that work from like cancer diets for like, Hey, we know this medication interacts with these, um, foods. And so you, you know, or you have to be on this sort of a diet, but I think there's so little known about human nutrition because it's biochemistry built on physics, built on chemistry, built on like all these layers of abstraction that, uh, to me, dietitians are overvalued in our society. Really? You think so? Okay. That's interesting. Um, well, we'll see, right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> but I mean, and then I think there's a, a definite point where um, I'm going to talk about exercise because that's been, and I'll tell anybody this, the thing that's helped me the most is making sure I get enough exercise. Um, I, I run or lift weights at least five to eight times a week and I mean, man, that's really, um, that's really made a change. And when did you start running 2019 and how did it go when you started freaking terrible for a week or or a month or so? It was awful. I hated every second of it for a month. And, but my wife wanted me, and this is weird. It's funny because I listened to your, your podcast with the, with the running coach today and talked about how you should progress. And I was listening to that while I was running this morning and thought, huh, I probably could have used this last, last year. I, prog- <laughs> I progressed way too fast. I went from running zero to run a half marathon in 
the I, I started running in January one, and I ran a half marathon the end of April. Um, yeah, yeah, it was way too fast, and I had in, um, you know foot injuries. Uh, it, it was a hard road and I pushed myself probably harder than I should have, but I'm glad I did it. Um, and you know, I've just kept it up since then. Uh, I actually ran my second half marathon this past weekend on Halloween. Um, it was, it was just one that my wife and I and my, my nephew ran together. It was just the three of us. Um, and it was really a cool thing that we were able to, you know, we were, I know you and I have talked about David Goggins a lot and we had all kind of read that book right before we, we, we did the half marathon and we talked about it and that helped push us through those, you know, those last few miles and when it was really getting tough. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm at my goal for this year, it was a thousand miles and I am at 891 right now wow so, man yeah. that is wow i've it's, done 500 i've never done a thousand that's amazing it's it, it's been there's been some time like i got i was doing really well and then i got sick in march and i didn't run for like two weeks um and i, I thought oh, man it's not gonna happen it's not it's not gonna happen i'm never gonna catch back up now because i i calculated that i had to run 2.74 miles each day on average to, to make it to a thousand miles for the year. And I got really behind there for a few, few months really. And I caught back up, I think in October and now I'm, I'm ahead of schedule now. I mean, that's one of the best parts about having those big goals where you, if you really keep up with it, all that time that you had to do to catch up with the time you'd lost now all of a sudden becomes a victory. You get to stack on there. So it's even better than where you were before you got sick. And, you know, and, and the thing about big goals are, what if I really try for it? What if I really um, do my best and I fail and I don't get to a thousand miles? Well, I still ran 995 or 950 or whatever. That's pretty damn good too. That's why we have to make sure that we are always pushing ourselves on goals because we never know the really potential that we, we have for ourselves. Yeah. And I think goals, one of the things I've learned about it is writing them down is what matters, right? Yep. Like there were a lot of times when I would say in my mind, I'm going to do this thing. And then the next day would roll around and be like, well, I mean, I'm not really starting it yet, but when you write <laughs> it down, that, that's like, I don't know, something far more serious with your psyche. There's there going on. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Writing them down and, and holding yourself accountable. That's, that's the big thing too. Well, speaking of holding accountable, I have got to get to bed because I'll be up at 3am with the baby, but yeah, uh, man, know, man, Jason, this has been fantastic. It's been great. I can't believe it's been, gosh, I can't believe it's been this long already. It's just it, time flies, man. It was great chatting with you, and it has been a great pleasure to have you in the uh, Articulate Ventures Network, man. I'm really glad you joined. Yes, sir. Well, thanks for having me, Vance, and thanks for your podcast. It, it, it's a huge influence on my life.